open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. As lifelong learners, many ophthalmologists are in constant pursuit of new information, insights, and experiences. One of the best ways to broaden our minds is by going global and interacting with our colleagues who practice in other countries. Hearing about their cases, their technologies, their challenges, and their passions is an enlightening and enriching experience. For this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I sat down with Dr. Bruna Ventura of Recife, Brazil. Bruna opens up about her family's contributions to eye care in Brazil, her passions for pediatric cataract surgery, and the emotional demands of treating children. She also sheds light on how congenital Zika syndrome influenced her research and practice and sheds light on some of the technologies that she relies on to provide her patients with some of the best possible outcomes. Here's Bruno. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with another edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bruna Ventura from Recife, Brazil, which is in the northeast on the coast. And uh, uh, Bruna and I were talking a little bit before this just about her practice and and the things that she's excited about in ophthalmology. And I'm I'm so excited to uh, get to share um, her experience with the the listenership. So, Bruna, with that being said, thank you so much for uh, being willing to come and talk to me today about uh, what you're giving back and what you're doing in ophthalmology. It's very exciting. Thank you for the invitation. It's such a pleasure to participate and be here. Yeah, well, thank you. So uh, one thing that was so interesting, and, and, and this theme has uh, played itself out as I've talked to a number of, of uh, ophthalmologists, is that ophthalmology really seems to run in families. It seems to be a dominant gene, and uh, that dominant gene definitely um, uh, took place in your family. So will you give us a little bit of a historical perspective on your family's role in ophthalmology in Brazil? Yeah, this is so interesting. It all started in our family with my grandfather. His name is Altino Ventura, and he was an ophthalmologist. And my father followed his steps and became an ophthalmology, an ophthalmologist. My mother was supposed to be a cardiologist and met my dad when she was about to finish med school and then got convinced to do ophthalmology also. So both of my parents are ophthalmologists. My dad does mainly cataract and retina. And my mom is a pediatric ophthalmologist. And I have two siblings. So I have my sister that's a retina specialist and my brother that's finishing med school and probably going into ophthalmology in six months. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) He might be disowned if uh, he didn't follow in the tradition, correct? He he has to decide now if he's going to go into glaucoma or neuro-ophthalmology or what. He's going to have to fill one of those unmet categories. Yes. Yes. Well, that's awesome. And um, I know that cataract surgery is really a passion of yours, uh, but not just the adult cataracts. Uh, you actually have, it seems like quite a subspecialty that you've carved out in uh, taking care of pediatric cataracts as well. So talk to me a little bit about that. How did that come about? Is it just that there was a need for someone to uh, be willing to own that group of patients and you stepped up to the plate? Or uh, maybe with your mother being a pediatric ophthalmologist, there was a, a large opportunity to help in, in, in her side of the clinic? Yeah, it's interesting how I got involved with pediatric ophthalmology, specifically pediatric cataract surgery. Um, My dad, Marcelo Ventura, he operates in children with congenital cataract and infantile cataract since 1994. And when I was doing my residency in the Altino Ventura Foundation, I started 
um, going to the OR with him to see him operate the children, and I would follow them up on in the pediatric ophthalmology um, department after, and I just fell in love with it. At that time, my father was doing his PhD thesis on and studying these children, and specifically the use of intracameral trimcinolone at the end of the, the surgery to modulate inflammation, and I got very involved with these studies and with the children, and I started operating on them on my third year of residency. Mm -hmm. My father started teaching me, and it was something that made me wake up. We were just talking about that before the right. interview. Um, my, the days that I was going to operate a child were the bright days. Like, I just loved it, and it's so challenging and at the same time so rewarding to see children um, being having a life change. So the child usually comes to you, and he can only see and identify light or hand motion. And after your surgery and with visual rehabilitation, you see that you make a huge impact in this person's life. So for me, it's so rewarding. And I started to dedicate myself more and more to this. So nowadays, I my father continues operating with me every Tuesday morning. We do that together. And most of Wednesday mornings, we also have children that we operate on. And it's something that really gives me a lot of pleasure to help these children. You know, it's interesting, just as I'm hearing you and hearing the enthusiasm that you have and passion for this, you know, I get that that sense of satisfaction from taking care of, you know, cataract patients who are in their 60s or 70s. But these are patients who's, who have already lived a good life, who have um, a normal, for the most part, uh, visual development. And, you know, cataract surgery is going to impact them for maybe the next 10, 20 years, you know, maybe more. But um, when you are able to take care of a child, the years of impact that you're able to have on that child um, and their potential for, for taking care of themselves, being a productive member of society, going on and, and taking and not only taking care of themselves, but not having to be cared for by their mother um, um, or family. Um, it's such a burden that you're relieving for those families. And so um, I, I can I can really see how that would be such a rewarding thing and to see, you know, a child who really goes from having little hope to uh, restoring their sight. You know, I don't know if there's much, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. Would you agree? <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think adult cataract surgery also gives me a lot of um, pleasure and the sense of reward um, with the results. And I love doing my adult cataracts also. But with children, you their parents or caregivers come and they're so afraid of the future of the child. Right. So it's emotionally very involving. Like I love being involved with the families and supporting them in this hard time and teaching them how they can make that vision of the child be developed more and more and more. So it, it's something that it's really rewar rewarding for the physician. We we totally depend on the, the family's involvement in the treatment. I always tell them it's totally different in adult cataract surgery where the vision has already been developed. Once you operate, two seconds after you take off the microscope light, the patient will be seeing better. What a child know, you have all the rehabilitation that they need to do. So it's, it's a treatment that demands more of the family, but they're so willing to participate and be engaged in that because they know it will change that, that child's, their baby's life. So for me, it's very rewarding emotionally also. I love being involved with these patients. 
my adult cataract patients, I love all the technology and the femtocataracts and the new lenses, the trifocals, the extended depth of vision lenses. So I'm also, I also have that side of, of being very involved and liking a lot the technology and being able to help and, and provide to my patients the best care in ophthalmology. I always tell the residents in my place that we are so fortunate because ophthalmology 20 years ago, we had a big gap between Latin American and Brazilian ophthalmology, for example, versus the American ophthalmology or the European ophthalmology. And nowadays, it's something that's amazing how it's so global. What you have here, we have there, and right. we can offer it to our patients. We learn together, like in these meetings, um, in the academy, and the ASCRS, in Brazilian meetings, like it's such a rich exchange of information. We're so connected and we learn so much from each other that we can always offer to our patients the best care. Well, and I would say um, I've learned so much from my international colleagues. You know, the fact that global ophthalmology is, is um, I guess, equilibrating or becoming um, very standardized, it allows um, more experts across the, the entire field who can offer solutions, can innovate, can teach. And, you know, where you come from does not determine your ability to have um, a great idea or um, willingness or ability to to teach and, and show others how it's done. So um, I would just say that I'm so, so thankful for all of my international colleagues who do amazing things and, and, and a lot of times have access to technology years ahead of us in the U.S., um, and so now we are in the U.S. in many cases really trying to learn from our international colleagues how to do it. You know, what are, how do you make a panoptics work? How do you make a, you know, trifocal work in your practice? Um, you know, because we don't have access to those things yet. One, one thing that I think recently was so interesting to see how we affected the world was with the congenital Zika syndrome right. that started in Brazil. So Recife is the epicenter of the, was the epicenter of the epidemic. And my sister, Camila Ventura, that's a retina specialist, and my mom, Liana Ventura, they are both head of all the studies that we are um, undergoing now and we're, we're doing in the Altino Ventura Foundation with these children. And it w when the congenital Zika syndrome first start, like we first started reporting it, it was interesting because we didn't have any answers for all the questions. We only right. had questions. Right. And now slowly by slowly, like step at a time, we have the answers to give to the world. So now the U.S., for example, is starting to have their own cases right. and we can't, they already have learned from us, let's say. They, we have so many people going to Brazil, to Recife, from all over the world and we love to have them because we know that we need to spread information on this um, congenital disease so that other families don't have to, to undergo what we are undergoing there. And if they do have a child that has congenital Zika syndrome, how they can get better assisted. So this was something that was interesting because the world, we weren't learning from the world. The world went to Recife to learn that. So it's an exchange. I think that represents well how global we are now right. and how well we are learning and exchanging information with our colleagues. Yeah. So I want to dive in a little bit to um, uh, just your adult cataract population. I would love to hear 
um, what tools you're using um, from biometry to laser to, to lens, and maybe give me a little bit of a peek into um, what your adult cataract population looks like. How many are choosing to go for advanced technology, and, and what are your philosophies on the newer technology uh, that we're all trying to use? Yes, with regards to technology, I think I got a lot of that from my dad, that I'm very open to technology. So our private practice that's called the HOPE Eye Hospital in Recife was one of the first in Brazil to have the femtosecond laser when it first arrived in Brazil. And we since then are very enthusiastic about it. We use it routinely. We So it's something that I really defend and I see a benefit in my patients. Mm-hmm. What, whereas, femto, what femto are you using, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I'm using the Lensex. That's okay. what we have. Uh-huh. We have, But I have used the Catalyst also when I was training um, at Baylor College for one year. They had both the Lensex and the Catalyst, right. so I got to see both. And But back home, we have the Lensex, which was the first one that was available. Right. And it's a very good platform. Um, I. It's interesting how technology evolves and competition is very positive so I I love it that we don't have only the Lensex in Brazil but it's we have it for a long time now and we have a lot of experience at first the patients we would have to talk about the laser like most of the patients did had not hear about um, femtosecond laser cataract surgery but it's interesting now how many patients will come to us at the office and they will arrive and be like in their first consultation. They'll be like, oh, I came because I want to oper- be operated by you with the laser. Right. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And the same thing happened with the multifocal lens. At first, we would also have to have a lot of chair time to like explain what's the multifocal lens, how does it work, and what are the advantages. Now it's the opposite. I usually spend more time when I contraindicate a multifocal lens for whatever reason, right. explaining why I'm not going to implant that for the patient to understand, then when I'm just explaining about the, the technology because they already usually have a friend or a family member that have had the, the surgery with a multifocal lens. With regards to the lenses now, my my practice, my routine is to use the extended depth of focus lens. Okay. I always do a mini monovision, so... And I have great results for all distances. Are you talking about the Symphony lens? The Symphony okay. specifically, yes. yes. Got it. Symphony and Symphony thor- Toric lens. The Symphony calculator, toric, Symphony Toric online calculator is very good because it can incorporate posterior corneal astigmatism. Right. And that was something that came in the last version of the calculator. And that's wonderful. It really improves the outcomes. It's, it's very good. All the... The studies in the posterior corneal astigmatism by Doug Koch, his his colleagues, it's amazing and it really helps us. So sure. that, that's that's uh, very interesting because I also um, really enjoy using extended depth of focus lenses. And so I want to ask you because it seems like there is a little bit of a um, a divide between ophthalmologists who are using extended depth of focus. Um, I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday, and he said that he really tries to hit both eyes for hard Plano, like really close to Plano, because he felt like if you leave them a little more myopic, you might get more nighttime glaring halos. And there, there are some studies that have shown that if you, if you take the dominant eye and you hit them at Plano, you take the non-dominant eye and target about a minus 0.75, you really maximize the benefit of all the ranges. And I and that's that's what I believe. And so I 
I actually am a proponent of sort of doing a mini monovision with Symphony, which sounds like you're kind of doing the same thing. Yes. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like when you do that, you get more glare and halos in the at, at the nighttime driving conditions in those um, eyes that end up a little more minus? No, actually, um, this is my routine strategy for my patients with the Symphony. So I aim the dominant eye for far and the near eye with a target of around 0.5, 0.6, maybe 0.7, but usually around 0.6, minus 0.6. And what I see is that the patients don't have an increased um, complaint of halos and glare, and they get the J1 for near. So many of our colleagues that are like, oh, this is a lens for far and intermediate, not for really near, near. Well, with this strategy of mini monovision, the patients don't lose far vision, so they continue 2020 for far, and they do get J1 very easily. That's what, at least in my, my clinical experience, that's what has been happening. If the halos and the glare has gone away, like zero glare and halo, no, that's not true. Right. Some of our patients still complain of it, but of them, but it's not a, the routine, like not most of my patients come in the office and will be like, oh, my God, I can't drive at night. Right. No, no, no. That's an exception. It can occur. And I tell all of my patients about this um, disadvantage of all multifocal lenses up until now, trifocals, multifocals, extended depth of vision lenses. But it seems to be less than with other lenses. One advantage that I wanted to point out about the symphony lens is the flexibility, like you sometimes you missed your target, so you aim for a plano, and you end up with a patient staying a plus seven zero seventy five, for example. Mm-hmm. With some lenses, you would be like, oh my god, he would twenty forty for for far and a J four whatever right. for near. It would be like chaotic. In this lens, the technology that the Symphony uses, you don't have the decrease in vision that you would expect with the other lenses if you had that target missed. So that's something that. Of course, you're not um, aiming at that. You're missing your target because we know that science, it's not an exact science. Right. Um, But this makes the doctor more comfortable and more reliable on the technology because it's more forgiving. Right. I found the exact same thing. And what's interesting, um, we're talking about sort of doing that mini monovision. If you look at the defocus curve, it's not like a sharp peak um, at Plano and then sort of a, a decline. It's sort of a gradual peak uh, to Plano, and then a gradual decline, almost like a plateau of vision. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you look at the defocus curve, you can miss on the minus side mm-hmm. by a half a diopter and still be at that 2020 level. So the de- defocus curve sort of works backwards for a half diopter mm-hmm. and forwards for a diopter and a half. So in my opinion, some of the best results are the patients who end up about minus a half because they end up getting a full two diopters of vision. And it's not these two peaks of vision where the multifocals in the past, you could see, you know, at distance and then at a very specific point um, at at near. This really is a continuum of vision. And I really love your philosophy of this sort of mix and match because I guess it matches my own. I'm I'm a little biased. We share the the same biases, I guess. Yeah. So, well, that's wonderful. One, One question I have is, are you doing any of these type of advanced technology lenses in children? Um, or are you specifically using monofocal lenses in them? And what are your thoughts about uh, exchanging them down the road or laser vision correction as they as they mature? That's a very good question, very interesting question. I don't defend multifocal lenses in children. We know that for these 
eyes to develop, the child has to have the best contrast, contrast sensitivity and visual, like correct, best correct visual acuity. So I, I think the decrease in the quality of vision that we still have with all the technologies that provide multifocality can make it more harder for the eye to develop. Right. And at the same time, let's say when you operate on a baby, we follow a table that my father developed with the hypocorrection. Let's say if I operate a baby that's a three-month-old baby, I will hypocorrect him in nine diopters so that by the age of four, he'll be emetropic. So that's, in theory, in the majority of the patients, that works. So if he's three months old, I'll decrease nine. If he's six, I'll decrease X. And depending on the age, I'll hypocorrect him in a specific amount. But we know that's not an exact science again. Right. So sometimes you aim for him to be plano at four years old and know he's plus two or minus three. And with a multifocal lens, you can't really do that, like miss the target so much. So one of the big t- challenges of using these lenses in children is obtaining good vision with no compromise of the quality of vision throughout the development of this eye, of the vision of the child. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, it's very common for us to see that with the healing process, the bag of the child contracts. Mm -hmm. And that can decenter your lens. Like, where will you center the inner ring of the lens? Like in a child, he's or he or she is sleeping, and that's very hard. Sure. And we routinely implant a, a an endocapsular tension ring to avoid that contraction, but still, like, there's so many challenges to implant a multifocal lens. So my go-to lens in children is a three-piece IOL that's from Alcon. It's called Type 7. Okay. And it's just like the MA60AC, but a little bit smaller, so it's better, fits better um, baby's eyes. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So I really appreciated um, you sharing your perspectives and kind of getting a glimpse into your practice. Any other things um, in your personal life or just sort of um, other passions that um, you that get you out of bed in the morning and make you excited about um, you know either your practice or personal life? Um, I'd love to just hear a word or two about uh, you know what makes you tick. Yeah, I think many things makes me. So the working with the children, as we, we spoke at the beginning, that's something that really I love. And my adult cataract surgeries also. I'm very involved with the administration of the, the businesses, the private practice and the, the foundation. And it's something that also, it's a new challenge for us doctors. We don't really learn how to run a business in med school right right (laughs) so learning about finance and all the statistics and everything that makes me it's another challenge it's as if it were were like a third part of my life like running the business and i think teaching uh teaching residents and fellows is something that keeps you learning and keeps you involved um the new generation is very avid for knowledge. I think now one of our big concerns and big challenges of the new generation is to filter what's important to read and learn because there's so much information available. And I like learning with the residents and guiding them. And at the same time, when they see something interesting, they guide me and they show me. So that's something that I really enjoy. And the fourth point is how global the world is, as we were talking, and small at the same time. I love having 
friends from all over that I can depend on. And let's say there's a new technology coming in Brazil, but it has been in Europe for a while now. I have someone that I trust that I can go to and have information and, oh, tell me how you would plan the surgery. Give me tips, pearls, what wouldn't you do? So I think that makes um, so more, me so more comfortable when I'm changing a, an approach or a lens or a, a technology that I'm adopting. And I think that's something that's very positive for all of us. That's right. Sure. Well, I, I, I share your enthusiasm for um, our field. It's, so, it's such a privilege to help people in such a tangible way. I don't know that there's maybe anything else in medicine that is so immediately gratifying than uh, restoring someone's vision. And the way that plays out um, in, and also interacts with technology and, and us trying new techniques all the time it just is a field that is always evolving and it's always exciting. And um, I, 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 sh I really am appreciative of the fact that you're, you share my perspectives. And I, I totally agree. When you have colleagues that you can lean on and trust when you're trying a new technology, it makes you feel so much more comfortable when you're, when you're doing that for the first time. Um, yes. So, Bruna, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. Um, you're doing such a great job in um, taking care of patients and children um, in Brazil. Brazil's a country I absolutely love. <laughs> I went when I was 16 uh, to Rio. I took a two-week trip and left a little piece of my heart there. I think I, I just love it so much. So, um, a big fan of Brazil, um, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We'd love to have you come back anytime you would uh, you would like, and if you had more to share, we'd, we'd love to follow up the conversation in the future. Thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. Okay, thank bye. You. Thanks. Bye. Bruna and her family have made significant contributions to ophthalmology in Brazil and beyond. Treating children in the midst of an epidemic such as Zika is no easy feat, but Bruna's passion for her work is palpable. As Bruna mentioned, ophthalmologists today are becoming increasingly global, and I think the benefit of remaining connected to our international colleagues is crystal clear. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. As always, I encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You can also catch up on past episodes at itube.net slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.